Uh, my name is Kevin Cuthbertson. I am one of the family's pastors here, and this morning we get the joy of finishing uh, the great letter of 1 Corinthians. So if we would, let's turn together to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. If you're using the blue Bible that is under the chair in front of you, it is on page 1143. 1143. And here's what I want to do. You may notice up on the screen that the the title of this sermon is Maturity in the Mundane. And I I think that's for a specific reason. Because as I was reading this week and thinking through it, I was just seeing that that there's an interesting drop-off between chapter 15 and chapter 16. I think you'll see it as we read it together. So here's what I want to do. I want us to read beginning in chapter 15, actually. So we're going to read starting at 1 Corinthians 15, 50. So let's look there together and let's read this together. Here's what Paul writes. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep But we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, "'Death is swallowed up in victory.'" O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And then our text for today Now, concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you just now in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work is open to me, and there are many adversaries." When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the, old, with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. And now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have made up for your absence, for they refresh my spirit as well as yours." Give recognition to such people. 
The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prissa, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that, God, you have seen fit to to reveal yourself to us. And it would have been right for you to come and reveal yourself to us and say you have broken what, what you have seen. That indeed we know that in nature there is enough to know that you are powerful and that you are sovereign. And even from seeing that natural revelation, we have sinned against you. We have denied you. We have neglected you. But God, you did not come in that way that God, when you came and when you spoke, you spoke words of mercy and of love and of grace God, you forgive all who trust in you. God, you, uh, you, you cleanse us of our sins as David prayed earlier. We thank you for that. And Father, I pray that this morning we would look to Jesus to have our sins forgiven. That we know there is no other name given among men under heaven by which we must be saved except for the name of Christ. And so I pray this morning that whatever message is spoken, that the one thing that would be clear is that you are good and loving and kind and that through faith in Jesus, we can be saved. We can be forgiven. We can be adopted as sons and daughters and have you as our glorious, heavenly, eternal father. Father, if there are any who came in this morning not trusting in Christ, may they not leave here apart from that. Save this morning, we pray. And if there are any of us this morning who are trusting in Christ, and yet, Father, we've let the worries of this world and the the stress of life get to us, Father, may we return to your promises, your sovereignty, your everlasting purpose, and the eternal hope you give us through Jesus Christ. Do a good work here this morning, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. Okay, so I don't know if you noticed it. I don't know if you noticed chapter 15 is this soaring theology, these beautiful words about the beauty of the kingdom of God and what God has done. We hear things like this, we shall all be changed in the twinkling of an eye. Death is swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your sting? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is taking us on a trip through the heavenlies, through this eternal picture. And then chapter 16 begins, and he says, now about your money. Did you notice this? I I have some travel itinerary I want to tell you about. Submit to this guy. Aquila and Priscilla, they say, hey. It just feels like a PS, doesn't it? Like, I'm not questioning him and I'm not questioning God, but it seems like chapter 15 would have been a great place to end. But chapter 16 comes and we hear it and it just feels like it's just a collection of random thoughts. People will say this about the book of James, that James is a collection of random thoughts that don't really, that don't really kind of follow a line. I don't believe that. I don't see that, but I will make that argument for this. This is a collection of kind of random conclusions that don't necessarily go together. It it feels like we go from a world of majestic to mundane, from divine to daily, from the world of changed in an instant to the world of simply changing diapers. 
Here's the deal, though. You know this. I'm not telling you anything new. We don't live in a life of the divine. We don't live in the heavenlies. Our days too often do not feel majestic, do they? Rather, it's a daily, persevering, struggling fight to fight the fight of faith, to believe that what God has said is true. And this is, this is what we need to recognize here. Chapter 16 follows chapter 15 for a very specific purpose because you will never live a life of maturity in the mundane if you don't live with your eyes set on the eternal. If you don't see this eternal heavenly picture, then how will you live life here in a fallen world? And so Paul turns our attention toward heavenly realities so that we will be equipped to think rightly and to live rightly prior to seeing those heavenly realities. So the Bible talks about walking by faith, not by sight. What does it mean? It means so much of what God said is happening and will happen we do not see that the world tells us a different story. It lies to us. And so we walk by faith, believing that what God has told us is true. And that what, what God said he has done, is doing, and will do is true. We walk by faith even when we don't see it. And it's that faith that moves us towards a life of holiness and a desire for his glory, not only in every day of our life, but in every aspect, no matter how seemingly small or inconsequential. Look at how chapter 15 ends. He points us to the glorious, heavenly, eternal realities, and he ends with these words, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord and knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. That's the end and that is the setup for chapter 16. Eyes turn to the glorious eternal work of God and know, brothers and sisters, that your labor is not in vain. And then he comes along, chapter 16, with these final instructions for the church in Corinth and for the church here at apostles. And I want you to notice what he does. He points us to our finances. And you're like, oh, great. I visited a church or came to a church and they're going to talk about money. How shocking. But that's what happens when you ask the Baptist guy to preach. Just kidding. That's a joke. Okay. What, what does, here's the question. What does maturity in our finances look like? This is a question we need to ask because Jesus talked about money a whole lot. What does maturity in our finances look like? And how does the eternal perspective of chapter 15 inform and empower the believer with their finances? So look what Paul tells them. He begins chapter 16 and he says this, the first day of the week, uh, which would have been the Lord's day, the, the day they would gather for worship, they were to put aside something. They were to take up a collection and this collection was going to be sent to Jerusalem. Uh, during that time, I think this is what it would have been for, there was a famine in Jerusalem. And so the church there was struggling. They were suffering. And so you've got this church in Corinth. And Paul is telling them, you're going to support them. You're going to help them. I want you to take up a collection to send to them. And he says that when I arrive, we can either send letters with faithful men who will take this, or I can go with them. But this is, the, this is the directions he gives to this church. He says, the church will gather this collection as each believer, each family will put aside an amount and that amount is to be taken up as they may prosper. 
What that means is that if you make more money, you should kind of think about giving more. And if you make less money, you should, you should consider giving less. That it's not, he's not saying, okay, I want every single family in the church to give $10,000 or $5,000 or $1,000. He's saying, look, if God has prospered you, give prosperly. If God, if you're at a place where money doesn't flow like you would like it to, you can give less. But he wants here, not a percentage, not 10, 20, 80%. What he wants is, and what he's saying is this, believers, when you think about your finances, when you think about your money, think of them eternally. Think of them with the heavenlies in mind. Don't simply look at your paycheck or your bank account as means by which you eat and drink and live. Now, I'm using those three words because when I think about it, that's usually the way we think of our money, right? How will I eat? How will I drink? How will I live? Where will this come from? And I find it interesting that in chapter 15, Paul uses those exact words that I just stole from him, quite honestly. And he says this, and you may know it. Look, if none of this is true, and we are not raised from the dead and our bodies don't, aren't, aren't, aren't magnified in heaven and we don't go and spend eternity with God, then what should we do? We should eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Think about this. Paul gives this eternal perspective and says, look, if nothing is true, if the resurrection is not true, if we're all wrong, then just eat and drink for tomorrow you die. Christians, we don't believe that, do we? We don't believe that this life is wasted. We believe that if you are trusting in Jesus this morning to save you, to forgive your sins as your only hope before a holy God, then he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also raise us. He will give life to our mortal bodies and we will spend eternity with him. That is the hope of the Christian. And yet to our shame, so often we look at our finances with no eternity, with no heaven, with no uh, 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 resurrection in mind. And we simply say, well, let's use them to eat. Let's use it to drink. Let's spend it for tomorrow we die. Do you see the problem? You see what needs to be corrected in us? I was actually pastoring a, a, a small church on the west side of Atlanta before coming here, so uh, three years ago, this month actually. And we had a girl there named Livia. Some of you actually may know Livia. She's here in Atlanta now, obviously. But she grew up in a Romanian orphanage. And Livia tells her story. She actually travels around to do the, the, the shoebox, you know, the Christmas shoebox thing. What's, what's it called? Operation, Operation, I about called it Operation Shoebox. Operation Christmas Child, I should have looked this up and put it in my notes, shouldn't I? But she travels around because she became a Christian in a Romanian orphanage as a small girl because she received a shoebox. But the amazing part is how it happened. She tells this story and she says, you know, when I was a little girl, and some of you, you little girls or older girls may remember these, some of you guys, I doubt you wore them, those little plastic hair clips. You know, they were pink and blue and yellow and they had like a little butterfly or something. You remember those? Everybody, everybody remember them? She said, when I was in my Romanian orphanage as a young girl, that was everything I wanted. I'd always dreamed about those. That I, I would think about them. I would pray to God and I would ask him, hey God, can I have some of those? 
Like, think about that. That is that's kind of heartbreaking, isn't it? I want some of those. And she says, well, you know, one day, and I, I had heard about these things, but I had never, I'd never gotten one. Well, one day, I got a shoebox. All right, let's cut the story. Let's go somewhere else. Because here's what I picture here, that somewhere in the States, some parent, it could have been a parent in this church for all we know, some parent took their kids to Family Dollar, right? That's where most of us go, Walmart, Target, Family Dollar. And they're walking around with their shoebox and they're just putting stuff in it, right? How, how many of you say, I pray for this bouncy ball. God, use it for your good. I pray for this coloring book. This is really nice underwear. I hope he loves it. We don't, right? But they're putting these things in and I picture this little girl walking down the aisle of Family Dollar and seeing those hair clips. I have some of these, these are nice, these help me. I'm gonna put them in the box. Without much thought, without much prayer, she throws them in a box, they wrap it up, they take it to their church, they send it away. And what they didn't know was this, that God was doing something amazing that God was doing something big through something small. They didn't know that those hair clips, they barely, probably, probably barely considered would end in the hands of a girl who'd always dreamed of them. They had no idea. They couldn't know. They couldn't imagine that the girl would open this box up, see sitting right there on top the thing she'd always dreamed of. And they couldn't know that this girl, so in love with her clips, would stand in front of churches in America 20, 30 years later and say, it was those hair clips right there that made me love that box. I'd pull it out from under my bed, I'd open it and I'd see those hair clips. And then it, it made me love not only the hair clips, but the box and everything that was in it. And she said, because I got what I'd always wanted, I would go to that box and I'd pull it out and I'd read what was in it and I'd read the Bible and I realized that God had given me what I'd always wanted. But then as I read on, I realized God had given me exactly what I needed. I needed a savior. I needed to be saved. I needed Jesus. And she says right there, I trusted in him and I was saved. I tell this story because of this. I want you to hear something. This is an eternal perspective. This is what should fall on the hills of chapter 15. That dollar that you make, that paycheck you bring home, that one that we could just as easily spend on Starbucks, our new shoes or on a gym membership, on eating and drinking and living, if we gain an eternal perspective with our finances, what might God do as we are faithful to give to his work? If he can take hair clips and bring that about, what can he do as we are faithful to give? How might he multiply and bring about eternal heavenly good, not only for you, but for people around this world. That's what Paul's saying, set aside each week. If you get paid monthly, set aside monthly and he will take it and he will use it above and beyond anything you hope for or imagine. Friends, I, I, I've, I've seen the numbers. I've, I've read the stats of how many Christians in American evangelical churches give. It's not, it's not good. It's probably about a tithe percentage. <laughs> oh, 
what would God do if we said, you know what? I want that eternal perspective. I, I may not find out how he uses it this side of heaven, and I don't think we will for the most part, but one day, I think we will get to heaven as we are faithful to give and we'll meet somebody and they'll say, you know what? God used what you gave that day. This is not some cry tactic to get you to give. It's to say, God, give us an eternal perspective with our money. You don't, you don't need some, hey, give. We just need a bigger picture of God, what he's doing how he's using us. He's talking about finances here. May it be that we learn that your giving in the Lord is not in vain and he will use it. He goes for finances to talk about his travel plans. This will be fun right here, won't it? And he lays out for Corinth what he wants to do. He says, you know, I, I wanna come visit you, but we learn in 2 Corinthians that God had another plan, that God changed his travel plans. But I wanna point out something he says that I, I really find interesting. Look at verse eight with me. Uh, we're in chapter 16 now uh, exclusively. I'm gonna stay in Ephesus where he was currently ministering until Pentecost for a wide door for effective work has opened to me and there are many adversaries. A wide door for effective work is opened. So Paul's in Ephesus, he's preaching, God is doing amazing things. You can read about it in Acts if you would like. As he preaches, people are coming to faith in Christ. They're being saved. They're being uh, saved eternally, adopted by God, made sons and daughters of his. This is miraculous, isn't it? Salvation is miraculous. And if you're here, the side note, if you're here this morning and you are like one of those people, who's ever thought my testimony is kind of boring? You hear somebody's testimony, you're like, wow, that's amazing. Mine's kind of boring. Look, there is no such thing as a boring testimony. There's no such thing as a testimony that is not miraculous. For in every situation where a person is made a believer, God has healed blind eyes. God has healed deaf ears. God has brought the dead to life. There's no such thing as a testimony that is boring, and there's no such thing as a testimony that is not miraculous. If you are a Christian this morning, God has worked a miracle in your life. Praise him for that, okay? Side note, and here in Ephesus, God is moving. Miracles are happening. The, the lost are being saved. The dead are being brought to life um, physically and spiritually. God has thrown open a door for ministry, but notice what he says. He does not say, but there are many adversaries. I find that interesting. Maybe it's just one word and I shouldn't, but he says a wide door for effective ministry has opened for me and there are many adversaries. Um, so I told you I was preaching before coming here and every single, I mean, pretty much every single week, my, my wife can attest to this, Saturday night, early Sunday morning, um, all hell would break loose in my house. My kids would wake up with horrible dreams, demonic sounding dreams, um, leg pains. Y'all have leg cramps? Did you have as kids? They're terrible. My kids, I, I handed them. That was one of my Father's Day gifts to them. I think genetic, they got them from me. So they have them all the time. Um, whatever it could be, every Saturday night without fail, we were up. So I'd get into the pulpit to preach with no sleep. 
few weeks ago. So I, I preached here a few weeks ago, the 9 and the 10.30. So my wife and I, we go out to this nice date uh, the night before, and we come home and our air conditioner has gone out, and we're like, oh, that's, that kind of stinks, you know? So we're kind of messing with that. And then uh, a few minutes later, my mom was downstairs, and she just says, uh, Kevin, but it doesn't sound quite right the way she says it. And, um, and she says, you need to come in here, okay? And a spider has come in our house, and it's about the size of a cookie, and by cookie, I mean a cookie cake. I mean, this thing is, it's like a hubcap walking through my yard. And that, now I know that spider gets bigger every time I tell the story, but I swear that thing was this big. And so I'm like, ah, oh, okay. And so he's by the door, she, she is by the door. That is important for this story. And so I just reach my foot down. I do have a shoe on and I just kind of nudge it out the door. And right when I nudge it, spider babies go everywhere. And they start climbing up my walls. And I just think, this was not normal. In 40 years, this has never happened to me. And I just think, this is the way it goes before every sermon. Notice what Paul is saying. The wide door for effective ministry has come. And there are many adversaries. Now, a worldly perspective would just assume this, and I'm, I'm tying this to you. A worldly perspective would say this. Look at the turmoil. Look at the trouble around you. If your faithfulness is causing garbage and trial and trouble in your life, you're obviously not supposed to be doing that. That's what a worldly perspective would say, and yet the eternal perspective would say this. You are to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, or as Paul would say later in chapter 16, be watchful. Be on guard, stand firm, and be strong because you need to know that as children of the king, as you are faithful, you will be attacked. That as your ministry, as your life is going the way it's supposed to, there will be adversity. Jesus said it like this. Look, the servant isn't greater than his master. If they hate me, they will hate you too. Don't be surprised when fire trials take place among you. So friends, don't make the mistake of assuming that because you are under attack, because you are in trial, you are in trouble, because life is full of chaos, don't make the mistake of assuming that your work is in vain, that your labor is pointless, or that your faithfulness is not worth it, or that you should be somewhere else doing something else. That's not what Paul is doing, and that's not what he's saying here. He's not complaining about the adversaries. For him, their presence is not proof of an error in his ministry. They are proof of the effectiveness of his ministry. Friends, if that's where you are today, where you are being faithful, where you're seeking to serve and chaos is just reigning everywhere, where your life is full of trouble and trial, Paul encourages you and Jesus is encouraging you, be steadfast, be watchful, be immovable, stand firm and don't doubt for a second that your faithfulness to the Lord is in vain. And God is faithful. Through your faithfulness, he will bring about his eternal and glorious purposes. Lastly, notice something else here. I, I told you this is kind of a random, random text, right? So I'm trying to tie it together for you, and uh, it's, it's random. Okay, lastly, notice something here. Paul writes to this church in Corinth, 
and he points to them about what maturity in their fellowships look like. So maturity in their finances, maturity among a fallen world, maturity in their fellowships. Notice here that at no point does Paul talk about Corinth like they are a church in isolation. Did you notice this? Rather, every paragraph and every point is in relation to another faithful gospel-centered church elsewhere. Your finances, I want you primarily Gentile converts to share with the church in Jerusalem, these primarily Jewish converts. They are in need. I want you to help them with your finances. Um, uh, Timothy and Apollos. Yes, they're, they're serving elsewhere. They're building up the, the, the God's church in other places, but they're gonna come and see you. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla and the church that meets in their house, they send you greetings. All the brothers send you greetings. In the New Testament, here's what we see. The faithful gospel churches saw themselves bound together. There was a mutual love, a mutual concern, a mutual respect and care for one another. They prayed for one another specifically. They provided for one another in their time of need. They were not in competition. They were in cooperation. And at no point in the Bible do we see churches in isolation because a church in isolation was a church at odds with the gospel and its work. Friends, In this city are so many great, faithful, gospel-preaching churches. And I want to acknowledge that this morning, and I just want to say thank God for that. Thank God for that. Now, I'm going to follow up your amens and your yeses with, um, there's also a terrible churches. I mean, let's acknowledge that too. There are churches in this city as well that have perverted the gospel that don't believe God's word, that are preaching something that is at odds with what we believe and with what the Bible says. We should pray for those churches too. And I'll tell you how I pray for those churches. I pray for them that God will bring them to repentance or God will shut their doors. And that if God shuts their doors, he will allow a faithful gospel church plant to come in and buy their building cheap. Right? We want faithful gospel-centered churches here, and this church has plenty of them. Thank God for that. We're not called to competition with them. We're called to cooperation with these faithful churches. You know what I mean when I say faithful, right? I'm acknowledging that there are churches we do not want to cooperate with. But I also want to acknowledge there are churches that, oh, I want to. I want to know what's happening. I want to know what God is doing. I want to know how to pray for them. We should be at prayer, in prayer for these churches and for their pastors. We should pursue relationships with them. And if they have needs, I want to know about it. I want to know how we can be helpful because they are our brothers and our sisters with whom we will spend all eternity. We are not alone in this fight for the gospel in this city. Praise God for that. But beyond that, Corinth and Jerusalem weren't in the same city. They weren't close. They were separated by miles, by backgrounds, by socioeconomics, and by race. What does Paul say? Corinth, remember them and sacrifice for them, give to them. And outside of this city and even around this world right now, there are our brothers and sisters. 
and they're worshiping Christ, and they're fighting the same fight of faith we are. They're being faithful. They're loving one another and preaching this exact gospel. This gospel, as Paul told the Colossians, is bearing fruit all around the world. It's bearing fruit in Atlanta, and it's bearing fruit in Romanian orphanages and beyond. And this is what I love. I'm just going to say this is what I love about leading the way and about Help the Persecuted is it's, it's taking this and it's putting it to action, right? That is a ministry of our, of our church and beyond where we're putting this into work, that these are ministries that they and we are serving our brothers and sisters with whom we will one day sit and feast. Have you ever thought about this? When you're watching TV or when you're reading um, articles, or I don't know if people read newspapers anymore, um, articles online or whatever it may be about Christians around the world who are losing their homes or, or their jobs or even their lives, these are our brothers and sisters. We're going to spend eternity with them. And I, I assume, I was never good at math, Mississippi uh, education, but eternity seems like a long time. And I assume over eternity, we're going to get to know them pretty well. I, I, I feel like one day, I feel like we're going to be able to sit in heaven with Christians from North Africa and from Kenya and from Japan and from Germany, men and women from the third century, the fifth century, 10th century, 21st century. And we're going to be able to hear their stories and they're going to be able to hear ours. And we're going to be able to say, man, isn't our God good? How, is, how amazing is it that he sent his son to save people like us? And, and I think what Paul calls us to here, and we, we need to look at ourselves and examine, God, oh, that we would love one another, that we would love other churches and honor other churches and pray for other churches, that we would be happy to pray that God would bring revival in this faithful Presbyterian church in Smyrna. Or we know about this Baptist church in Kennesaw. We know what trials they're facing. God, bring them through it that he would protect their pastures, that he would bless their flocks, that he would even bless his sons and daughters outside of Atlanta, in, in Iran, in Kenya, in Korea, in Syria. Friends, this eternal perspective here places upon us not only a local, but even a global perspective. It would have us longing for the good of our brothers and sisters, not only in Apostles or in Smyrna or Marietta or Duluth, but in every, every nation to the ends of the earth. This is what he's saying. None of this is in vain. Let's not make the mistake of thinking that a daily mundane is pointless. It's not. And very few of us will be called to having our names known, our lives written about or on TV. Most of us will never headline or even form a conference. Most of us will not have to lay down our lives for the gospel and die a martyr. And yet all of us are called to maturity in the mundane of our daily lives. Called to maturity in our finances. Called to maturity amongst a fallen world. Called to maturity in our fellowships, in our marriages, in our parenting, our grandparenting in our work, at the ball fields. May it be that God gives us an eternal perspective that so grips us that we live each day in every single aspect with eternity in mind.
for the glory of Christ, for the good of his people. Let's pray for that right now. Father, I thank you for your goodness. I thank you for your word. I thank you for your grace at work in us. And I thank you, Father, that you call us, you equip us for more, and the more is never in vain. So, Father, may you bring about in us an eternal perspective that gives us maturity in our finances, maturity in a fallen world, maturity in our fellowships with others. And, God, I want to practice what I preach right now and pray for Perimeter Prez this morning and their pastor, Randy Pope, who will stand up in the next hour or two and he will preach through Romans 8. Father, I thank you for him. I thank you for his faithfulness. I pray you would protect him and provide for them, uh, for him. May he speak your words and glorify you through it. And may those people have eyes to see, ears to hear. God, and I pray for revival in that place. I pray that you would restore joy to their salvation and do a mighty work. And I pray as they're transitioning to Jeff Norris as their senior pastor, that Father, you would hold them together in unity and love. We know that is a tough situation, but work mightily for your glory there. They are our brothers and sisters. We love them and want to lift them up in prayer, asking you to do good in their lives. Father, I also pray for Michael as he prepares to preach here in the next hour. God, your word never returns void. It always achieves what you sent it for. And so, Father, we pray you would purpose mighty things in and through this church this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.